Well, good morning, everybody. Awesome. Well done. I'm proud of you guys. Thank you so much for being here. I know that there's lots of different places that you could have been spending your Sunday morning, but we're so grateful that you decided to spend just a little bit of your time here with us this morning so we can learn a little bit more about who God is and a little bit more about who we are because of him. And I'm thankful if you're, if you're here live at our Banks Mill campus or if you find yourself at one of our other campuses like Banks Mill or The Ridge or if you're tuning in online, regardless of the way that you're tuning in, we're grateful to have you. And I am super grateful for the opportunity to kind of dive into God's word with you as we continue through this Amos series and learn a little bit more about what his word can teach us. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, I am Ben Lee. I'm the worship director here for the Banks Mill campus of Cedar Creek Church. Uh, before that, I had the incredible blessing and opportunity to be able to hang out with our Ridge campus, uh, where I was the worship director and the center point director as well. And all of these have been incredible opportunities. And uh, I'm looking forward to having the opportunity to do something a little bit different this week, uh, being that I'm not leading worship, I am preaching. I have had a handful of other opportunities to preach uh, live here at Banks Mill and stream to our campuses and online. And there's a couple of things that I have a really bad habit of doing whenever I do have the opportunity to speak. The first is that sometimes I have a tendency to allow my tongue to run much faster than my brain. Most of the time this manifests by me stumbling over my words and saying something that sounds awfully silly. I hope that you'll have grace for me if that happens. It's just because I'm so excited to be here. Another thing that I've noticed uh, I've done almost every time that I've had the opportunity to speak here at Banks Mill is uh, sometimes when I get excited, I, I throw like some statement out there that might not be exactly what I mean to say and can easily be misunderstood and is not necessarily congruent with what I intend to communicate. And I almost always inevitably follow it up with a statement, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just said that. They're never going to invite me back here again. Nothing has worked so far, so here I am. But we'll see what we can do. I am, I am grateful to have the opportunity. As I was preparing for this week, uh, I spent a little bit of time thinking about the idea of preaching a sermon in general. The idea that, uh, of this paradigm that we have for our Sunday morning services where we spend some time in worship, we spend about 30 minutes with a sermon or 25 minutes with a sermon, and we try to learn a little bit more about who God is. And I started thinking about myself and the number of sermons that I've sat through. I'm, I'm 26 years old. Um, I grew up in the church, and, and I attend most weeks out of the year. And I'd be willing to bet that aside from the age demographic, most of you um, grew up in church as well, but if you didn't, we're, we're extra glad to have you here. But regardless, for most of us, if you find yourself somewhere around 40, let's call that the mean age or the, the median age of our congregation, and you grew up in the church and you came most of the weeks out of the year, let's say 40 out of the 52 Sundays that we have in a year, the likelihood is that if you fit that demographic, you have heard 1,600 messages so far in your life. For many of you, you may have heard more if you attended summer camps and that kind of thing. I know a lot of you guys may have heard less because you didn't grow up in the church or you attend a little bit more sparsely due to work schedules and things like that. But regardless of what demographic you fit into, the likelihood is that you have heard a ton of Sunday morning messages. It's normal for you on a Sunday morning to put on your Sunday best or your jeans and your t-shirt, whatever you're comfortable in, attend a Sunday morning service and listen to the word of God preached. 
And it's easy for us to just kind of let the specialness of hearing from the word of God just kind of wash right over us and miss just how special it is, this fundamental idea that God has shared bits of not only his word but himself through his word. And that's why I'm so excited to be here and share that word with you. And I know for a lot of you guys, you're a little bit older than I am. I don't mean to offend, it's just a simple reality. (laughs) But I know most of you are probably looking at me thinking, why is this unkempt child trying to preach at me? It's a fair question, to be honest. Um, But that's one of the reasons that I love so much what we get to do here on Sunday morning. Because I know that for me, the goal is not to share some kind of earth-shattering wisdom or guidance from myself. In fact, the goal for me this morning, and hopefully for you too, is that as I speak to you, as I talk to you, this book would get bigger and bigger and bigger and myself smaller and smaller and smaller until it's just the right size for me to hide behind this morning. Because within the pages of this book, every page, every story, every chapter, every verse is a wealth of knowledge and guidance, words of compassion and love and hope in the midst of darkness. So that's our goal for this morning. And I I do have a a four-year degree. My undergrad degree is in um, biblical theology or biblical studies, and it was an incredible opportunity to receive that formal training on uh, how to carefully and faithfully interpret the Word of God in the way that the initial writers would have intended for it to be read and the way the initial hearers would have heard it. But the truth is, even after all those years, I still don't have this secret formula to where if I read any passage, by looking at things in the passage, if you were to ask me, what does this passage mean? Most of the time, I'm in the same boat that you guys would be in spite of that formal training. I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. But one thing that I have learned if I could boil it down or narrow it down to one lesson through, through my professional career in ministry, through my own life experiences with the word of God, through my formal training when I was in school, one thing that I have noticed is most of the time when we come to the word of God trying to find all of the answers, we usually don't find exactly what we're looking for. But a lot of the time when we try to discern a central question, if we try to train ourselves to ask the right question about a passage, then so much more fruit is born. Now hear me, what I'm not saying is that there are no answers in the Bible. What I am saying is that it's easy to inject our own interpretation and our own answers into the word of God because there is a brokenness within us that manifests as selfishness. So we want to interpret the Bible the way that we see fit. But a really, really great way to combat that is to find an essential question that that particular passage is posing of us or about us or about God. Now, there's lots of different kinds of questions that we see in Scripture. We could find a question in a passage that calls us to a certain kind of behavior, right? Behave differently, act differently, live your life more according to the identity of Christ, less according to your own identity. It it could be uh, a a question about who God is instead. There are lots of different questions that could be asked, but I think especially for this passage, 
it's a great place to start to try to figure out what that question might be for us. And there's a specific reason why it's so important for this passage. It's because within this passage, and this morning we're going to be in Amos 8, uh, verses 1 through 6. And the reason it's important for this passage is because embedded within this passage are all of these subtle, easy-to-miss allusions to these large historical events for the ancient Near Eastern Jewish people, the Israelites, God's chosen people, at the time when Amos is prophesying. And they're so easy to look right over if you don't know the story surrounding them. So I'm going to introduce to you a word that I hope will act as a tool for discerning the central question of any passage that you may come across in Scripture. The, the word may seem intimidating at first, but I promise the idea behind it is simple. It's this idea of something called narratival theology. Narratival is a narrative. In other words, for the ancient Near Eastern Jews, they would have looked back at the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would have looked back at these countless stories recorded in those books and understood who God was, their theology, in terms of those narratives, in terms of those stories. So the more they read and understand and grow in understanding about the way that God has interacted with mankind through history, the better they understand or grasp an understanding of how God interacts with them. But the truth is it's not just the ancient Near Eastern Jews or the ancient Israelites that did this. We do the same thing, don't we? Right, think, uh, do me a favor, Close your eyes, leave them open. Just think of a person that's really important to you. It can be your spouse. It can be a very close friend. I'd be willing to bet that most of you with that close person, your friendship is built not just on activities and common interests, but on shared experiences, shared stories or narratives from your past, whether they were good or bad, that bound you together. The nature of that relationship has been determined by past stories of that relationship. And we don't just do this on a personal, relational level. Uh, we do it on a national level as well. I'd be willing to bet that most of you have probably heard of the Watergate scandal. It was this far-reaching uh, political scandal that occurred under the Nixon administration. And from that point on, when something was referred to as a Watergate, it usually referred to the fact that whatever you were referring to was some kind of wide-reaching scandal. Like, think uh, not too long ago, there was a deflate gate. The word Watergate was adapted, and, and this appendage or suffix, gate, was added onto other nouns to be able to help someone contextualize what you were talking about, like deflate gate. Tom Brady, a while back, was accused of deflating footballs uh, to give himself an unfair advantage in a, in a really important game. They called it deflate gate to show that it was some kind of wide-reaching conspiratorial uh, plan to try to give himself an unfair advantage. What you just heard was the extent of my football knowledge right there. And I only know that because of a Google search. I know nothing else. I don't even know, know who Tom Brady is. A quarter is back? I don't know. In any case, we, we do the same thing even on a national level. We use past stories, significant historical events in our lives and in our nation's lives to be able to inform us about our present and where we're headed. After all, the, the entire field of history is based on the central premise that knowing or understanding about the past helps us understand our present and our future. 
if that weren't true, then there would be no need for the field of history at all. And in this specific passage, it's really important because there are all these subtle allusions to big historical events in the Israelite history, like a big flood. I realized that last service, just now I realized this, that I said it was Moses' flood. It's not Moses, it's Noah's flood. I've read the Bible, don't worry about it. The, if, if you do know a little bit about the Old Testament, when you see allusions to a flood, it's often trying to make some kind of meaningful connection to that Noahic flood, Noah and the ark, uh, or, or the Sabbath. It's easy for us to think in terms of like a Sunday morning service, that's like what the Sabbath was, but for the ancient Israelites, it was a little bit different. It was rooted in a big historical event as well, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And there's also reference to the strange, untimely darkness, the sun being blotted out from the sky in the middle of the day. Not unlike uh, what we experienced with the solar eclipse not too long ago. Um, I got to experience up, it up at the ridge, and I know a lot of you guys were able to join us. This incredible cosmic event of the sun being blotted out of the sky and creatures beginning to act like it's the middle of the night and it's time for them to go to bed. In fact, the passage that we're going to be looking at today begins with this symbol that comes from stock imagery in the ancient Near Eastern cultural milieu. Take a look at your outline there. The first verse you see is Amos 8.1, the very first passage that we get to, and it says this. This is what the Lord God showed me, a basket of summer fruit. Now, if you're anything like me, when you first read that, it may have been confusing because there's not necessarily an immediate thing that jumps into your mind when you think of the symbolism of fruit. Or maybe for you, you think about it in terms of modern symbolism, and you know that in a lot of modern literature, fruit can symbolize all kinds of things like fertility or life or growth, uh, all kinds of different things. And it's easy for us to just kind of insert our own meaning and understanding of what that symbol could mean and then just move on from there as if we've understood the passage a little bit better. But it's so, so important for us when we approach the biblical text to have the intention of understanding what the author meant initially, especially when it comes to a controlling passage like this with a very important symbol that will determine the tone and meaning of the rest of the passage. So we'll come back to this bowl of fruit a little bit later and talk about what exactly it means. But I'd just like to establish the fact that if we're ever going to note the essential question, one of the very first things that we have to do is put ourselves in the shoes of the writer and the reader and try to understand what God intends to communicate, not what we want to find. Luckily, as we try to determine what this question might be for this passage, this question for us that can help us interpret, we get a pretty good hint of what it's going to be earlier in the book of Amos. In fact, if we take the book of Amos as a whole, we learn a lot of really, really valuable things about who Amos was and why he was trying to communicate to the people of Israel. Sorry, this message brought to you by Nalgene. We learn a whole lot about what Amos intends to actually communicate with his prophecy. One of the first hints we see is the fact that unlike most of the minor and uh, major prophets in the Old Testament, Amos is not prophesying in his own hometown, right? We learned earlier in this sermon series that Amos was called from his home kingdom in the southern kingdom of the split people of God, the kingdom of Judah, and he was uprooted from there and brought into the southern city in the northern kingdom, hopefully you can follow that, called Bethel. 
So he's not in his own kingdom when he prophesies, unlike most of the other prophets. Like take, take Habakkuk, for example. Habakkuk would have prophesied in his own kingdom. In fact, he would have had his prophecies taken down. And it says this in the book of Habakkuk, if you take a look. He would have had his prophecy drawn out on stone tablets and hung up in the town center so that people could have a constant reminder of what Habakkuk had prophesied about and warned. But God decides to do something a little bit different with Amos and calls him into a brand new kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel instead of his home kingdom of Judah. And I think we have to ask ourselves, especially when we see something different in the biblical text or unexpected, why? Why would God try to do something different with Amos? And I think in the first couple of chapters, we get a very clear picture of why that is. The reason God called, or one of the reasons that God called Amos out of his hometown to prophesy in a completely different kingdom was to establish the fact that this was an international prophecy, not a national prophecy. Many of the prophecies in the Old Testament only have to do with the nation of Israel and their unrighteousness and the coming wrath as a result. This, by contrast, is an international prophecy. So there's something different going on here. And we see exactly that in the first couple of chapters. We see when we begin to read the book of Amos that it doesn't begin with a prophecy over the nation of Israel, but instead with a prophecy over the nations that surrounded Israel and what we know today as Palestine. Right? He talks about this place called Damascus, who are being judged because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. You don't have to know a whole lot about the historical context to know that that sounds bad. I ain't trying to get threshed today. Right? It talks about a place called Bethel. It talks about a place called Tyre. It talks about a place called Edom. All of these different surrounding nations and people and their offenses, when summed up and categorized, are essentially the same. They are all guilty of mistreating the people around them for their own selfish gain. But then suddenly we see a shift in that as we move from the surrounding nations into prophecy about the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. Take a look for yourself. You find this in Amos 2.4. It's there on your outline. It says, Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but they have been led astray by the same lies after which their ancestors walked. Now for the people of God, we see more prophecy begin to unfold for the rest of the book of Amos about exactly what the nature of their offense was. And when we look closer at the rest of the chapters before chapter 8, we see that their essential offense was roughly the same as the surrounding nations. They had mistreated their own poor. They had mistreated the people around them and been unrighteous because of that. So the question is, as he prophesies over Judah, why specify that their offense is that they broke the Mosaic law, this law that God had handed down? Why specify it if their offense is roughly the same? And I think there's something important going on here that's so, so important for us. The fact that we as the people of God have the law of God impressed on our hearts and in our minds by his word does not mean that we are removed from the wrath of God. Instead, it means that we are measured with a greater measuring staff. And I know that sounds harsh and I know that sounds scary, 
But the truth is for you as believers, for us as believers and a church, the stakes are very high when it comes to the way we act and whether or not those actions are in line with God's word or contrary to them. Here's why. Because in the ancient Near East, the identity of a deity for a culture was known through the practices and behaviors of the people who served that deity or that God. Uh, I'll give you an example, if, and this was very common in the ancient Near East. If a god was condoning or supportive of child sacrifice, you and I could probably make some safe assumptions about what that god was like, right? First of all, he's imaginary, he's not real, but he's also not very compassionate, not very kind, not very good because he does not preserve the children of that nation. I'm just trying to set up this idea or this paradigm or this system where the actions that we as believers portray give either an accurate depiction or an inaccurate depiction of who God is. Our actions matter, and it's not just an issue of whether we're good people or bad people. It affects the way that God is seen by the people around us. That's why God gave the law to Israel, to make them holy, to separate them from the people around them so that people could see who God is and that he was righteous and good. Their unrighteousness had portrayed to the other ancient Near Eastern cultures an inaccurate depiction of who God was. In fact, if you look at the behaviors of the Israelites at this time, you don't see a God who's loving, compassionate, and faithful. You see a God who takes advantage of the lowly and desperate. So something has to be done. And I think it's also important to recognize in this passage a couple of words that I've underlined in that verse. This time I'm going to read that same verse, Amos 2.4, aloud. And when we get to those underlined portions, I need you to do me a favor. Don't make me look dumb. I need you to read it out loud. I'm going to look real silly if you don't. You guys want to try it? Uh, I guess not. I said, you guys want to try it? That's better. All right, Amos 2.4 there. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But they have been what? Led astray astray by what? The The same lies after which their ancestors walked. This is not a new offense. This is an offense that the ancestors of these Israelites had already fallen victim to. Now I think we have a good idea of the kind of question we should be asking ourselves. How do we break this cycle as the people of God? How do we keep from repeating the same mistakes that the nation of Israel made? How do we promote a better depiction of who God is instead of marring that depiction by breaking the law that he's given us? So let's take a look at Amos chapter 8 verses 1 through 6. It won't be on your outline but just follow along with your ears. It goes like this. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. This Amos is a sharp guy. (laughs) Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. 
saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, so that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. At first glance, the offense of the Israelites seems pretty obvious, right? Just like we've been talking about the whole time, it's mistreatment of the people around them. But if we aren't attentive and if we aren't aware of what's subtly going on in the background with this bedrock of cultural narrative and historical stories, then we'll miss an even better lesson that we can learn from the Israelites, which is the first point there on your outline. We have to watch what we trust. Watch what you trust. If, if you've read, especially the book of Exodus, um, you'll know, and, and Deuteronomy to a certain extent, you'll know that when the Sabbath is spoken about in the Old Testament, there is a specific story in mind. Because you see, the Sabbath was set up historically as a constant reminder of the fact that God is faithful and that he provides. You see, God had made a promise to Abraham long, long before this prophecy was given And he told Abraham, out of your descendants, I will make a great nation. And that nation I will deliver into a promised land. And the whole idea is that when God makes a promise, that promise doesn't get broken. Otherwise, he's not a God worth serving or praising. At stake here with this story is God's faithfulness. Whether he is actually dependable, in other words. And of course, the Israelites, after this long, long historical narrative end up finding themselves in Egyptian captivity. They are slaves. When everything seemed to be contrary to what God was promising, the question for the Israelites that they had to ask themselves was, will I trust regardless of those circumstances? A question that we have to ask ourselves constantly when we go through hard times. For the Israelites, God provided these incredible signs and wonders and sent plagues upon the Egyptian people and destruction to bring about their deliverance. And for a while, for 40 years in fact, they had to wander around in the desert before they were ready to receive the promised land. And when they were wandering in the desert, before God had fully fulfilled his promise of the promised land, as they were wandering, God continued to stay faithful to his promise by preserving them in this wandering. He provided manna which rained down from heaven. He provided a pillar of smoke to give them shade by day and a pillar of fire to give them light by night in the desert. He continued to be faithful. And yet the Israelites, even still in the book of Exodus, are quoted as saying it would be so much better and more comfortable if we were to return to slavery in Egypt because it is so much less comfortable to continue to trust in God to meet our needs, it would be better that we return to our slavery. And I think you and I have a tendency to struggle with this too. I know I do. Sometimes it seems like it would be so much easier to return to the slavery of my sin because I know that I can take care of my own needs and I don't have to depend on anyone. But what we have to do What this passage is reminding us of is that just in the same way that God provided for the Israelites wandering in the desert everything they would ever need, so too does he provide for us 
even when the circumstances don't seem to indicate it. You see, the problem that the ancient Israelites were having was that because they didn't trust God, they felt like they had to take care of their own needs by their own abilities. Take a look at Amos 5 through 6 there on your outline. It says, we, the Israelites, will make the ephah small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances and selling the sweepings of the wheat. Uh, just for a little bit more cultural context, the ephah and the shekel were, were uh, weights that were used on a scale to be able to measure either the amount of product that you were receiving for a payment or the amount of payment you were receiving for a product if you were a seller or a buyer. If we make the little weight big and the big weight small, what do we get? Inaccurate measurements. In other words, they're trying to not only make their own way by uh, integrity in business, they're trying to make their own way by cheating other people to support themselves in their own greed. And yet what God has called us to is to depend on him and only him. And it's so easy for us to let ourselves get worked up and stressed and overwhelmed because we feel like we have to take care of our own needs because God is not able. If you want a good indication of how you're doing with this. One of the best things that you can do is sit down with uh, your loved one, your spouse, your significant other, your parents, whoever you would consider close to you, an accountability partner, and take a look at two things. The first is your calendar, and the second is your bank statement. If you want to know whether or not you're trusting in God, regardless of what you say with your mouth, because it's easy to speak, that you're trusting in God. It's a lot harder to reconcile a life that doesn't trust in God with where you contribute your resources, including your time and your money. There's no arguing with it. And here's the thing I know for a lot of you guys, especially if, if you already tithe, if you already volunteer on a Sunday morning, uh, or if you already volunteer in the community, there probably isn't any kind of drastic change to make to either your calendar or your bank account. But even if not, here's something that can be really, really helpful. Is as we look at where our resources, our time, and our money is going, we can begin to strategize our service to God. After all, if you look at your calendar and recognize, I spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week working. That's a whole lot of time. How can I figure out how to dedicate that bulk time to showing that I trust in God by using that time for his good and not for my own glory, not to just take care of myself. Or maybe you look at your bank statement and you notice a lot of recurring drafts dealing with a cup of coffee. Nothing wrong with that. I love coffee. I personally think it's a worthwhile expense. But what if you could use that amount of money that you're spending on coffee to split it and buy two cups instead so that you could sit down across from someone else and offer them encouragement in the midst of hard times. I'm not telling you to change how you spend all of your time. I'm not telling you to change how you spend all of your money or your energy. But what I am asking is can we as a church and as a people of God put on display that God is trustworthy and faithful just a little bit better by choosing the way that we use our own resources. The reason this is so important is because it isn't just theoretical. There's something practical and meaningful embedded here. And it's that when we don't trust in God to take care of our needs, 
we don't treat the people around us with kindness and generosity. That's exactly what the Israelites struggled with. They had gotten so caught up in providing for themselves and feeling like if they didn't take care of themselves, they wouldn't have their resources met. They wouldn't have their needs met, their expenses met. So because of that fear, they destroyed relationships with the people around them to try to protect themselves. And I don't know about you, but this is something that I so often struggle with. That's, that's one of the reasons why this passage talks about selling the chaff of the wheat. The chaff or the sweepings of the wheat is the useless part. Nobody wants it. So, so what the people of Israel are doing is taking mismeasured amounts of garbage and selling it to other people. Sometimes I get so caught up in my sacrifice to God in worship, which the Israelites were supposed to bring fine flour measured in exact amounts with just the right amount of oil to make a beautiful dough to sacrifice to God at this new moon festival. So while they're making this beautiful sacrifice to God, they turn around and to the people around them sell mismeasured garbage. Does anybody else struggle with that other than me? Getting so focused on and obsessive over whether or not my worship is genuine on a Sunday morning and then turning around and selling the chaff of the wheat to the people around me because they don't matter as much as God does. Listen, the way that you treat others is not only one of the most valid means of worship, it's also indicative of the health of the relationship with God. So now we have a little bit of a better idea of what it is we're avoiding. A lack of trust in God. A lack of trust in God which breeds mistreatment of the people around us. But now I want to take a little bit of a closer look at how on a practical level we're going to avoid that lack of trust that the Israelites in Amos' time struggled with and the Israelites that were their forefathers struggled with. How are we breaking the cycle? And I want to go back to the basket of fruit because there's another subtle um, rhetorical strategy going on in this passage that's easy to miss. I missed it the first couple of times I read it um, and didn't recognize it until I looked a little closer at the Hebrew of the passage. Um, the Hebrew word for summer fruit is kayetz. Everybody say kayetz. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the summer word for the end, as God says, the end has come for my people Israel, is kits. If you're missing what's going on here, what I'm telling you is that in this prophecy is the prototypical first ever fruit pun. How ridiculous is that? <laughs> but that's exactly what he's doing. He's, he's employing a rhetorical strategy to draw this connection between this basket of fruit and the end for the people of Israel. It's almost like he's saying you better prepare for disaster. I got to keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's almost like he's saying... I'm plumb out of patience. Who groaned? I'm doing my best. It's almost like he's saying, orange you kind of bummed that you didn't follow the law. Or how about, it's about to get bananas up in here. Because I'm going to pour out my grapes of wrath. I'm sorry. That one was stretching it and we all know it. Kumquat. I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's no pun for kumquat. If you can think of one, you'll have to let me know. But he's using this pun to symbolize the idea that the, the time of forbearance and waiting, 
the time of patience with the people of Israel is over and something has to be done for their good. But it's incredible because embedded in this warning is the other meaning of the basket of fruit for the ancient Israelites. And we see it in a passage found in Deuteronomy. In this passage, after the people of Israel have been delivered from Egyptian slavery, there is an action that is set up as a physical reminder of exactly how faithful God is. He says, I'm going to deliver you into the promised land, and when you get there, I want you to pick a basket full of the most beautiful first fruits that you can find, the blemishless, the perfect. And then I want you to take that basket and set it in a place that will remind you of me so that you can remember that you can give freely because God takes care of your needs. You don't need that basket of fruit. It is a reminder, a physical reminder of the fact that God is faithful to bring deliverance and freedom to his people, that they don't need to serve and care for themselves because they will be taken care of by God if they will step out in faith. Embedded in this passage and in this symbol is a reminder that destruction is not the end of the story. And that's the next point on your outline. It's not the end of the story. And this is not the only place we see this in the passage, or else I might be prone to just let it pass by and not mention it. But, but take a look at Amos 8.8 8, there beneath that point. It says, Shall not the land rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? Remember we, we talked about a subtle allusion to this Noahic flood? In the flood of Noah, Noah was told to build an ark, get on an ark, and be saved from the coming destruction. In other words, what God is saying is that the destruction that he is preparing for the nation of Israel now is not utter destruction, but he will preserve a remnant of the Israelite people to be preserved and saved despite the destruction. There's another reason that he specifies that it's the Nile flooding and then receding. It's important to recognize that when he's uh, prophesying in the nation of Judah, he's literally right next to the Jordan River. And the Jordan River was just as prone to flooding as the Nile River, but in the ancient Near East, the Nile was a powerful symbol of this. This idea that destruction brings renewal and rebirth. Because when the Nile flooded, it deposited on its shores rich silt out of which these incredible crops and beauty could grow. This is why for the ancient Egyptians, they had two gods that were recognized by the Nile or were uh, the symbol for these gods was the Nile. They had one guy named Happy, which is appropriate because he was this benevolent god that brought fertility. And they had another god named Apep. And this Apep guy was also called the serpent of the Nile and he brought destruction. This single thing was symbolic of both destruction and renewal. Over and over again throughout this passage, we get to see it over and over and over again. Take a look at Amos 3.12. It says, Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who live in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. The Lord has promised to preserve a remnant of his people. A remnant of his people to continue to live in righteousness and depict exactly who he is. 
And then there's something else really cool that's going on. Take a look at Amos 8, 9. It says, on that day, says the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. It's funny because that language, that stock imagery, that symbol is used a couple of times in the Bible. The two most notable of which are in the ten plagues of Egypt. He's trying to draw this connection with the Nile, with the Mosaic flood, Noahic flood, (laughs) with all of these different things to remind them that destruction brings deliverance in the same way that the darkness in the world that they experienced in Egyptian slavery brought their deliverance. And there's another important place where this happens. At the cross, the single greatest, most powerful depiction of the fact that destruction is not the end of the story. Yes, he was crucified, and yes, he was buried for three days, but that destruction brought something new and beautiful into the paradigm of interaction between man and God. It brought complete salvation, not based on works or righteousness, but based on the imputed righteousness of Christ onto us, in which we can wrap ourselves like a brand new robe. Destruction is not the end of the story. Whether you're in the midst of pain and suffering of addiction or slavery to sexual sin, no matter what your struggle is, your destruction can bring beautiful new life. And I'm not saying that the hard things that you go through will be easier because of that, but what I am saying is that no matter the darkness, there is always a sliver of hope in Christ, no matter what. There's another prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Jeremiah. And during Jeremiah's season of prophecy, he goes to a place where a potter is using clay to make a pot. And as the potter begins to shape the clay into something, he realizes that it's become marred somehow. It hasn't turned out the way that he planned or intended. And so the potter takes that clay and breaks it down to nothing and begins to rebuild it. Jeremiah utilizes that as a symbol for what is happening here to Israel and what can happen through Christ in us. That is the kind of God that I want to serve because when I look around, I see so much suffering and hurt. I see so many people who are living without hope and are desperate for some kind of comfort. And the only kind of God that I think is willing to serve is the kind of God who proclaims from Genesis to Revelation that he can take that brokenness and bring out of it something beautiful. It's the only God worth serving, and it's the only God in whom we can trust. Every decision you make, every step you take, is based off of a hierarchy of values in your head, whether you know it or not. If you value one thing more than another, you're going to make a decision that supports that thing versus the other. I can't make the decision for you. You have to make the decision yourself. We as a church can't make the decision for you. Where is trusting God going to be in your hierarchy of values? For all of us, what we are called to do to break the cycle What we are called to do is place that in the preeminent spot, to trust in God. It won't be easy, but it's the only thing worth dedicating ourselves to. 
we, we've talked a lot about all of these crazy symbols and, and festivals and dates in this passage. And, and I want to read that last verse on your outline to remind us of something important before we close. It's from Colossians 2, 16 through 17. And he specifically references the Sabbath and the new moon among other festivals. He says this, Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. It's not about your behavior. It's not about the festivals or the rituals. The true substance is only found in Christ alone, in his ability to take something so horrid so destructive as crucifixion and turn it into the greatest story of redemption and hope that the world has ever known. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would just remind us every single day that you are the only one who can fulfill the needs that we have, our true needs. Needs for meaning, needs for some kind of context in the world that we live in, in the midst of the suffering. Needs for, for true hope, not just that we will be delivered from our worldly circumstances, but that there is something so much greater beyond our worldly circumstances. Father, teach us to trust more deeply in you and teach us to recognize that you are worthy of that trust. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.